All right, listeners, to start the show today, we are going to play a little game of two truths and a lie. Today's episode will be covering the Marvel acquisition by Disney, and we are going to throw out the two truths and a lie right now, and we will tell you which one is a lie at the end of Acquisition History and Facts. So get ready to predict. Number one. For a brief stretch ending in an internal Time Warner investigation, the president of DC Comics acquired a large position in Marvel stock. Number two, famed corporate raider and comic book villain Carl Icahn once made a play to gain control of Marvel from bankruptcy. Number three, Marvel owned Fleer, the baseball card company, and was affected in a huge way by the 1994 Major League Baseball strike. Which is the lie? You be the judge. Welcome back to episode 26 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today's episode is Disney's 2009 acquisition of Marvel. It really completes the saga for us here at Acquired, where our first episode was the Disney acquisition of Pixar, then our sixth episode was Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm. And all three of these, I believe, will have pretty similar tech themes, and uh, and David, I think, will uh, we'll really be able to kind of understand Disney's strategy and what their portfolio looks like uh, these days. Yeah, this is... Uh... Um, this will, I feel like I always say this, but this will be a fun one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, uh, get, and kind of a fun one here, here going into the holidays. It's a, uh, it's a nice one to tie up the year. Totally. I, and, um, speaking of Disney's triumvirate of, uh, IP acquisitions, I am pretty excited about Rogue One. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd bring that up. So I rewatched the trailer, uh, right before we started recording. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, uh, me neither. For for listeners who, uh, if if you're wondering, um, I'm not sure if it actually will sound any different, but this is the first time David and I are recording remotely. Uh, David's in in California right now, in the in the heart of Silicon Valley. Indeed. All right. Well, um, we don't really have uh, too much before the show. Do you want to just dive right in? Yeah, let's jump in. So uh, this uh, I can't remember. We've done so many of these episodes now, but this might be the earliest back in time that we're starting our acquisition history and facts. Um, oh are, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it is. We are going back to 1939, almost, uh, what is that? Almost 80 years ago. Um, when a fellow named Martin Goodman founded a company that he called timely publications in New York city, very timely, <laughs> uh, Goodman, um, was a pulp magazine publisher and he wanted to get on the gravy train of the fast, burgeoning comic book industry um, that was starting to take off. And so he started Timely Publications as part of his publishing empire. And the first comic book that Timely published was called Marvel Comics Number no. 1, which came out in October 1939. And it included the Human Torch, and the Submariner, which would be Marvel comic book heroes for a uh, long time to come. And yeah, uh, the, the Submariner is a little uh, 
a little bit more of a deep one. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's. I see what you're doing there. <laughs> it's, hey, it's, <laughs> it's it's pretty cool that it's uh, that the very first issue was called Marvel Comics. And yeah, I think that you know th- through a uh, you know the a crazy history that we're about to hear of of uh, um, all sorts of different ownership structures and consolidations and unbundling and rebundling keeps the same name. Yeah. Well, uh, interesting though, they didn't actually change the name of the company to marvel comics until 1961 right. so oh. um 22 years later uh but the very first uh comic book that they published was called marvel comics um huh. and apparently it was a big success uh it sold almost a million copies uh which um i think is a lot for a comic book probably especially a lot for a comic book in 1939 um yeah. but uh but the company timely would uh go on to do quite well um create you know many of the iconic comic book superheroes and villains that we all know and think of today uh captain america was the first really big one that they created in 1941 um which was uh well i guess world war ii was going on at that point in time but um the u.s either hadn't entered yet or was just about to enter world war ii um the Fantastic Four, uh, Spider-Man, um, the X-Men, Iron Man, Thor, the whole, many, many others. Lots of, uh, basically, uh, as a, um, I love superheroes, but not a, I'm not a huge comic book aficionado. Uh, so as a, like, casual comic book fan, like, everybody I know kind of except Superman and Batman uh, came yeah. from Marvel. And who, like, Wonder Woman. Yeah, Wonder uh, Woman, too. Yep. Uh, yeah, that was also it's, it's, DC it's, Comics. It's pretty much the whole crew. Yeah, it's like DC had, you know, the big Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and then everything else is, is Marvel. Um, and uh, so they they go on, they create many of these, uh, many of these characters. Um, and then in 1961, like we said, they actually changed the name of the company to Marvel Comics. Um, also, in 1961, uh, the editor of marvel uh who was a man named stan lee um who actually started at the company as an office assistant uh he was apparently he was apparently martin goodman's uh wife's cousin and uh started at the company in the early days as an office assistant and became um sort of the um the the spiritual head of uh the direction of of marvel and, and the comics um he and, kinda, and very briefly, actually, the the president of the studio, right? Yep, yep. It's like one one or two years in there. Yeah, um, uh, a a towering figure in Marvel history. Um, he uh, he decides to kind of push the company in a new direction in 1961, um, and that was to make comics that were aimed at slightly older audiences, so not just young children. Um, and that was the first of those was the Fantastic Four. Uh, which they launched in November 1961 and um, was the first time that like comic book heroes were sort of, you know, they'd always been like the, the Superman sort of like perfect image of, uh, uh, you know, masculinity often and, and uh, um, you know, heroism and, and the, the Fantastic Four were sort of like they squabble with each other and they were kind of, you know, anti-heroes in a way. Um, right, more human, more, much more, hu- you know, even though they had superhuman powers, much more human than the uh, Superman of the DC uh, franchise. Um, 
and uh, and that really kind of set the tone and and uh marvel became much more um it really sort of expanded the market for what they were doing and what comic books uh as a whole as an industry was and um that was that was their namesake and so you know spider-man was sort of like the quintessential like teenaged angsty um you know <laughs> teenaged angsty oh, superhero boy, did we ever see that in spider-man 2 oh man yeah the uh the sam raimi one with uh toby mcguire that was like it was <laughs> i just remember that one scene where he's like emo he's, he's got his hair dyed black and it's like over one eye and he's um yeah just it just like uh, almost felt like jumping the shark already even though i didn't really think it jumped the shark till spider-man 3 but yeah um totally he was uh ahead of his time (laughs) (laughs) um so uh that's a a big success for marvel and then and then later in the 60s in 1968 the first marvel acquisition uh change of control happens when goodman decides to sell out and he sells the company to the perfect film and chemical corporation uh, which was later renamed Cadence Industries. Um, and Marvel then became one of their subsidiaries, uh, or underneath one of their subsidiaries called the Magazine Management Company. <laughs> very... Uh, very generic. <laughs> yeah, very generic. Um, Honestly, and, when I was reading through some of this, it felt like a laundry list of incredibly know, generic totally. conglomerate names. Well, I guess that's the thing when you, you're looking at a company that goes back like almost 80 years. <laughs> right, um, right. And uh, in a in a fun uh twist of of foreshadowing uh in the 1970s when uh, when marvel's owned by um by cadence uh they actually strike a licensing deal with lucasfilm and they publish oh, wow. the star wars comic books in the 70s and 80s wow that's wild because to, to me like we've got a trilogy going on here and and pixar was actually owned by lucasfilm in the early days and yep Lucasfilm and Marvel had a licensing agreement in the early days. It's like it's kind of amazing they all ended up under one roof and, and had this and kind of joint history up. along the way. Yeah, if only uh, if only Steve Jobs were somehow involved, that should have been <laughs> our lie. That's right. Uh, that would have been fun. Um, so, listeners, you know that Steve Jobs was not involved in Marvel, um, and uh, so. In 1986, uh, Marvel changes hands again, and Cadence uh, sells the company to New World Entertainment, uh, the media company. Uh, And then New World undergoes some struggles and ends up selling it again shortly later to the billionaire Ronald Perlman in 1989 for $82.5 million. And uh, in another fun bit of foreshadowing of what's to come, Perlman uh, gives a quote at the time. He says, it, it being Marvel, is a, quote, mini Disney in terms of intellectual property. Disney's got much more highly recognized characters and softer characters, whereas our characters are termed action heroes. But at Marvel, hmm. we are now in the business of the creation and marketing of characters. Boy, does that sound familiar. Sounds super familiar. Hmm. Um, so uh, Perlman's pretty ambitious, and he um, shortly thereafter actually ends up taking Marvel public, uh, and it becomes a public company, and then he starts expanding. And uh, so he took it public in 1991, and then in 1992, um, they actually buy the, uh, the sports trading card company Fleer in 1992. Um, 
And then in 1993, uh, Marvel acquires uh, slightly less than half of a company called Toy Biz, which was a toy company um, that they also had a licensing deal with to create uh, action figures for um, for all the Marvel uh, superheroes and villains. And but, that comes... It's it's really interesting. They keep like vertically integrating and then unbundling, and vertically integrating and then unbundling. And it's it's interesting how like they kind of fluidly move throughout partnerships and ownership of you know their their core asset being the characters, and then moving in and out of publishing and distribution and uh, merchandising and all those and different different adjacent or in the case of baseball cards, not so adjacent businesses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see the prospectus on that uh, on that pickup. Yeah, what the rationale? Well, and that was in the middle of the baseball card bubble, um, which we will come back to again in one sec. But but Toy Biz also will be important in the future. Um, so they don't buy all of Toy Biz. They just buy uh, slightly less than, than half a share of the company. Um, and so things go along. And then a couple of years later, in kind of 95, 96 time, time frame, um, things aren't looking so good for Marvel. So they've expanded a lot. Um, the core comic book business, actually, there was a big bubble in comic books in the mid-90s, which doing the research for the show, I kind of like vaguely remembered. Um but even more so, in 1994, um, Major League Baseball went on strike. And this was like a huge thing. And you know, people thought this was the, you know, the death of baseball. But it, it, and it wasn't, uh, happily for baseball. But it was definitely the beginning of the death of the baseball card industry. And Fleer, Fleer suffered huge losses um, when, uh, when this happened. Yeah, I mean, I remember that that was the so I'm an Indians fan, grew up in Cleveland. That was the first uh, first year Jacobs Field was open, and uh, they didn't get a full season in there. Oh wow, I didn't realize that, man. Yeah, I yeah, remember that actually, strike so vividly. And wasn't um, I remember you know, and obviously being you know a Seattle podcast, I was a huge even though I didn't live in Seattle at the time, huge Ken Griffey Jr. fan, and uh, he I, I think I remember he was on pace to like shatter the home run record that year, and then the strike was. Uh, that's right shortened by the strike yeah i'm pretty sure you're right because i think uh i remember that the indians were really good too and we were in the world series the next year and sort of growing up i always thought like well it's weird that like the indians had this new ballpark in 94 and i think we actually played uh 95 in the alcs or the division series is when we played um the mariners and, and griffey was obviously instrumental in that but i remember thinking like how did we have a new ballpark in 94 but get into the world series in 95 and it didn't really occur to me till i was later uh you know like late later in the 90s like oh duh there was no playoffs in 94 yeah like can you can you imagine like that if that happened with the nfl now like oh yeah there's no, no super, super bowl. bowl yeah totally <laughs> um it was uh it was terrible and like uh, I was such a huge baseball fan growing up and it was um it was it was really a black mark on the on the sport um yeah so uh Marvel's not doing so good uh people are speculating you know the company's in trouble maybe it'll end up filing for bankruptcy uh, do, and- do you know why there was a comic book bubble like what were the other than the whole like Fleer thing what were the externalities creating the struggle for Marvel. I don't know. Um, I didn't do enough research on this. I I wonder if it was related to just the whole, you know, the baseball card bubble, uh, which is probably even bigger of a bubble. I mean, I was a huge baseball card collector, as were so many of my friends at that point in time. And still in my parents' basement have boxes and boxes full of baseball cards that are now worthless. Um, 
that the, the, the market just got flooded. Um, and I wonder if a similar dynamic was playing out in the comic book industry. Yeah, I uh, could see that. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's all this speculation about the future of Marvel and, uh, <laughs> and comic book villain, as uh, Ben referred to him in the, in the intro, Carl Eichen takes notice and he and his firm start buying up some of the uh, debt that um, that Marvel had uh, with public companies, even with private companies. If you have debt uh, that uh, often trades, other people, not the people who loaned you the money, can then sell the debt to other people. And uh, folks like Carl Lycan, this was this is a big part of their playbook: is they buy uh, debt in companies that they think are troubled, and with the hopes that. They're hoping that the company ends up filing for bankruptcy, and then in court, as debtors, they can end up taking control of the company. Uh, the um, the the not so charitable term for this is, in the industry is loan to own, um, or and, comic uh, book villain. Yeah, or or being a comic book villain. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this and, and this all starts playing out in the press, and uh, and then at the end of 1996 in December, uh, Marvel does end up filing for bankruptcy. And so this all goes to court, and uh, in early 1997, the court rules that Carl Icahn can indeed take control of the company, and he does. So Carl Icahn, comic book villain, is now head of Marvel. Um, it's, it honestly sounds like a Lex Luthor move. It totally does. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that would make this better is if uh, Carl Icahn were also CEO of DC Comics. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but alas that this is probably a good time uh to uh our listeners are are uh i'm sure they figured out by now uh carl icon is true the fleer thing is true um the ceo of uh dc owning a, a large number of shares in marvel is false that is false so carl icon uh now has control of marvel but there's just one problem carl icon didn't own all the debt uh there are actually big wall street banks that had also loaned Marvel a lot of money, and uh, they still wanted their money back. So the court, uh, the court case wasn't over, and the company still needed to officially reorganize and exit bankruptcy. So this is where Toy Biz ends up coming back into the picture, uh, this, this toy action figure company. Uh, and it turns out it was owned by this guy named Isaac Perlmutter, who was an Israeli-American. And he ends up proposing a new plan to the creditors of Marvel uh, that involves Toy Biz putting up money uh, and paying back the creditors and then taking control of the company away from Carl Icahn. Uh, and the creditors and the courts actually decide to go along with this plan. So control of Marvel gets wrested away from from the villain. It's like the, it's like the comic book, you know, happy ending and... Uh, the superhero Isaac Perlmutter comes in to save the day. <laughs> and Isaac actually still to this day is CEO of Marvel. Oh, that's uh, a great story. Even post-acquisition. All right, so uh, what happens to Toy Biz then? How does, how does that... Uh... Uh, so Toy Biz gets folded into Marvel, um, I believe, and, uh, and becomes part of the combined company. So then at this point, Marvel owns the, the IP to the characters... Um, and, and has a, a merchandising division to actually sell, sell the toys themselves. Yep. Uh, I, I believe that's, I believe that's right. Um, but it's still not like a, you know, it's not a Disney scale 
uh, right. consumer products division. Right, um, right. So in the meantime, something even more important for the future of Marvel happens, and that's that uh, I, I believe for a long time they've been making diff- various types of films and movies about the franchises, um, mm-hmm. but uh, films based on Marvel franchises actually start to kind of catch on with the public and become pretty big movies. Um, and it actually starts, I did not realize this, in 1997, that year when men in black comes out men in black apparently was a marvel franchise i had no idea oh no way because yeah. i knew there were comic books but i always assumed it was one of those like after the movie comics no uh, it was a marvel franchise and wow uh, um and then the god i watched that movie so many times when i was a kid <laughs> yeah will smith and tommy lee jones was great absolutely heroes um so men in black comes out in ni- the first men in black comes out in 1997 um, and 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 this was before Marvel Studios, right? This was Marvel yes. IP. So this being... this was exactly Marvel was licensing their IP to big movie studios, um, you know, to Fox, to Sony, to uh, to Time Warner, um, who were making these movies, big budget movies. Uh, mm-hmm. Blade, nineteen ninety eight, uh, and then the, and then the first really big one, X Men, to in the year two thousand. Um, right. Spider Man in two thousand two. Um, so again, Marvel's not making them these movies themselves, but obviously is noticing that, you know, collectively these movies are making billions of dollars really starting to take off. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's interesting to think about like there had been superhero movies for decades, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. we had a whole franchise of Batman movies. It's, it's not Superman like Superman movies. That's right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Christopher Reeve, who could forget yep. it's, it's not like we were new to this, but you know, like in, in the world today of like, you know, the or even 2009 Iron Man grossed 580 million dollars within yeah. Marvel Studios. Like, it wasn't that scale yet. It wasn't like every single blockbuster at the at the box office is going to be a, a, a superhero film. So yeah. it's interesting to think about like what what changed that that like all of a sudden caused these uh, superhero movies to become more and more of a sure thing for the studios to make. Yeah, I don't know, and it also kind of coincided. Well, I think the the Superman and the Batman movies were always at least i remember kind of growing up thinking about like oh yeah like i remember the batman movies um when right. i was a kid but um but i think it was just those two were like the big franchises the dc franchises and and dc i believe not always but for certainly through all of these decades was owned by time warner and still is um so they were mm-hmm. part of a big major media company and had the resources to make these um you know big budget movies uh whereas marvel i don't think ever did until uh, until until this era, and so you see these superhero franchises that had been obviously had huge followings, but weren't like the mainstream, you know, um, to the extent that Superman and Batman were. Um, right. Now get these big film slates. I, I think the other thing that was happening is this is sort of the dawn, and, and I don't know how much one led to the other. Um, sort of the dawn of like the sequelitis in in Hollywood. Um, and oh yeah. These, uh, and superhero movies, of course, uh, franchises lend themselves so well to sequels. Yep. Yep. Very true. I mean, as as uh, ever since, you know, 1939, every single one of these uh, these comic book franchises has issue after issue after, yep. after issue. They're serials. Yep. Um, so it's perfect for, you know, in a world where Hollywood needs dependable franchises to make sequels, you know, what better place to look to than comic books? Yep. Yep. Um, 
So in 2005, after you know a few of these uh, huge successful movies based on Marvel IP have come out from other studios, uh, Marvel actually takes a really ambitious step um, to start Marvel Studios to make movies themselves. Uh, and um, so they raise... $525 million in, uh, in debt in a credit facility from Merrill Lynch. Um, ironically, <laughs> like right before Merrill Lynch went bankrupt in the, in the, in the recession. Um, but they, they get a, a, a film financing um, vehicle from, from Merrill uh, and create the, really the first kind of major independent Hollywood studio since kind of the DreamWorks era. Um, this, was a, this was a pretty big deal. Yeah, and it's interesting to to think that um you know that this was something they just sort of started and ultimately became like very quickly the largest part of their business. Absolutely. Yeah. So the and and also interesting um you know they sort of when they announced this uh this was in 2005-2006 when they were getting this set up um they announced that the plan was that they were going to release individual films of going to you know individual franchises, Iron Man and the Hulk, which were the first two movies that they end up releasing, um, create these franchises. And then they were going to tie them all together into a crossover film. So, which obviously they did For, under Disney. the Avengers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but, uh, but that was the plan all along. And interesting that, um, Disney really, you know, has been hands off and let them, let them operate that plan. Um, yeah. Yeah. And thinking about, so, uh, in in making this move in starting the studio, they'd already licensed out so many of their characters to to other studios for uh, to make films and distribute. And yep. so when you think and, about and like, they're they're even, really their top tier characters, right? Right. So let, I'll I'll list the um, the characters that were no longer eligible for Marvel to make their own films around Spider Man, the Fantastic Four, Silver yep. Surfer, Wolverine, the rest of the X Men, yep. Deadpool. Uh, yeah, the, the, there's others, but when you think about like, wow, okay, so all those are off limits and what they've got is sort of like the second tier at the time. Like we don't think of them now cause they're huge, you know, right. gigantic, uh, blockbuster wins, but like Thor, Hulk, yep. Iron, Iron Man, Man. Yep. like that, like that's who they're left to work with. And then that's what they create the, the studio around. Yep. Uh, totally. And, um, and Iron Man was really, uh, that was really the best that they had available. And that was the first film. Uh, that they made and it came out in early 2008 and it ended up being it would, Robert tour de force from Robert Downey Jr. I remember seeing it in theaters such a great movie the original Iron Man absolutely uh, and actually the year before I think that was 09 and, and in 2008 they had the Hulk which which uh, um, was about half of, of what that yeah. film grows but uh, that was a they actually both came out in 2008 uh, and um, ah. they came out like uh, they, they made them concurrently uh, Iron Man actually came out a couple months before Hulk, um, oh. I believe, uh, at least according to Wikipedia, um, <laughs> and uh, which is always right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Iron Man made uh, 585 million uh, at the box office, so almost 600 million, which is uh, compared to films like The Avengers and uh, well, Iron Man three uh, and Frozen and other Disney movies, and um, certainly The Force Awakens that make a billion or even close to two billion. That doesn't sound like a lot, but at the time, that was a huge amount, even though it was only a few years ago. That's the um, beginning of an era. Beginning, really beginning of the superhero blockbuster era. 
Um, That's right. And, and it sort of signals to like any potential uh, buyer of, uh, of Marvel stock, like there's a new way to value this company and it's based on these numbers and has nothing to do with any of the other lines of business they're in. Yep. Um, so as, as you mentioned, uh, the Hulk comes out shortly thereafter and isn't the huge success that Iron Man is, but it's, it's a pretty, pretty successful movie makes uh, just under 300 million um, and is very successful and kind of proves that audiences are interested in this kind of content and will come out even for, you know, non top tier characters, if you can make good movies. Hmm. Um, so the next year in 2009, uh, before I believe there were, I believe they were intended to be five films on the slate that, um, that Marvel did with Merrill Lynch. Uh, but, before any of the following ones can come out, August 31st, 2009, blockbuster deal, uh, Bob Iger and Walt, and Walt Disney Company announced that they're going to acquire Marvel for $4.2 billion, um, which was quite a lot when you think back to um, when uh, Perlman bought Disney. Granted, it was in, <laughs> in the late 80s, but it was... Out of bankruptcy eight, court. Uh, no, no, Perlman, oh, bought it, uh, Perlman bought it from uh, in the late 80s from uh, New World Entertainment. Uh, it was less than a hundred million. So, you know, here we are sort of 20 years later, uh, and we're talking 4.2 billion. Yep. Yep. And it's interesting that like, um, it's, there's, there was not a single new piece of intellectual property that mattered between those years. Yeah. Like all those characters had already been created and it was really all about a new way to leverage that same intellectual property that made it what 40 times 40 plus times more valuable over yeah. that span of time yeah um super interesting i mean it really was it really was the films yeah yeah and to put to place a um to kind of like uh for listeners out there a 29 percent premium um was what was paid for uh for marvel above what it was uh currently trading at so while there was some scrutiny like Oh my God, that's a huge, you know, 4.24 billion. That's a huge, ridiculous acquisition. It's, it's not that much more than what the public markets were valuing it at. And it actually is pretty much in line with other public company acquisitions that we've covered on this show. Mm -hmm. And, uh, another thing that's important to think about, about this deal, um, that, uh, I think other folks who've written about it now and talked about it, it kind of lose context of a little bit. This was in the middle of the recession. Um, and oh, so yeah. this was like perfect timing by, by Iger and Disney to buy Marvel. Um, because people were worried at this point, like, you know, our, and we were talking about box office numbers a minute ago, they were certainly depressed by the fact that we were in the middle of the recession and like people didn't have nearly as much disposable income as they were used to having earlier in the decade. That's right. And for even more perspective, it was just over half the price that they paid three years before for Pixar. So if you kind of look at this trend, they hadn't yet acquired Lucasfilm, but let's, let's simplify Disney to a, um, a content and distribution company. And they're basically out buying content. Um, you know, the, the part, part two of their, uh, the, the second big pickup that they made here, you know, they, they signaled that they were going to do this before this was Iger's strategy mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it clearly had been working with Pixar. Yeah. And I mean, the, the Pixar, you know, famously, uh, Bob Iger's first board meeting as CEO, which was I think his like second day on the job, 
uh, he proposed to the board that he wanted to wanted to buy Pixar, and this was clearly how he kind of set the tone for his his tenure as CEO. And he's um, you know certainly hard to argue with his execution across uh, the three of these companies. Right, right, and it's 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 if you're Disney and you're looking around and it's you know 2005, like all the valuable content that you don't own. That's like some of it's in Universal and some of it's like there's little pieces and pockets elsewhere. But the three other big powerhouses are Lucasfilm, Pixar, and uh, and Marvel. And yeah, you know, went went in and over what how many years? Uh, 2006 to 2012. So over six years, rolled them yeah. all up. Well, and uh, you know, also you know, in keeping with the theme of the show or <laughs> half of the theme of the show now in, in acquisitions. Um, you know, Iger took over as CEO of Disney uh, right after there had been this um, this hostile takeover attempt of Disney that actually Comcast, uh, right before Iger became CEO, uh, launched a hostile takeover attempt to try and buy Disney. And of course, later, you know, five or six years later, they would end up acquiring NBC. Um, but this was like, I, I have to imagine that... Um, living through that, the Disney board and Bob Iger and kind of entering his tenure, um, thinking about seeing consolidation in the media industry coming, uh, and decided very actively deciding to be a consolidator as opposed to a consolidatee and looking around to see what they could buy. Yeah. And you look at the, uh, what that aggressive strategy helped them do. I mean, who was competing with Disney in, in 2005 and who's even close to competing with them now? I, mean, I think that 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 just totally worked. Yeah, um, and uh, uh, interestingly, uh, you know, Iger actually said in kind of the the press quote at uh, at the time of the Marvel deal, um, you know, he said Marvel's brand and its treasure trove of content will now benefit from our extraordinary reach. We paid a price that reflects the value they've created and the value we can create as one company. It's a full price, but a fair price, and. Absolutely. You know, we talked about this in the Pixar episode and especially in the Lucasfilm episode, but, um, you know, Disney's core competency and what they have that the other media companies don't have is that flywheel that, um, you know, that Walt Disney drew, uh, you know, back in the early days of the company, which is the ability to take great IP franchises like Star Wars, you know, like Pixar, like, uh, like Marvel and, and pump them through the flywheel and realize much more value out of it than they could on their own. That's right. And old school Disney was creating it, but new school Disney has, has pretty efficiently figured out how to bring in content. They don't create into that flywheel yep. too. Yep. Um, and I think the, the, the fourth piece of this stool that we haven't talked about yet, because it wasn't an acquisition is the tremendous growth of, of the ESPN business inside of Disney. And I think the, the, the four of those businesses together really, uh, really account for a lot of the, um, the, the growth and the dramatic change in share price between then and today. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, uh, uh, I hadn't thought about uh, ESPN in this context, but you bringing it up and in, uh, in the context of the flywheel. Um, well, I guess actually Disney was an acquisition. It was just a long time ago. Or yes, yeah, ESPN. Yep, yeah. um, it was uh, through a pretty complicated history. That might be a fun show to do sometime. Yeah, um, ESPN has a super interesting corporate history, um, but uh, the core ESPN business, I think in a lot of ways, I mean, it was totally the golden egg for many, many years for Disney, but um, I think is much more challenged today than it was a few years ago with cord cutting 
um, and uh, you know, linear television watching being much less of a thing. And obviously, Sports Center is still popular among many people. But I used to watch Sports Center every day, probably multiple times a day, and I haven't watched it in years now. Um, even though I still watch clips on Snapchat, um, <laughs> but uh, but you see this this strategy, and especially around film with ESPN two now with Thirty for Thirty and some of the investments oh, yeah. they're making there. Uh, yeah, I think about the yeah, OJ yeah. documentary and how great and ambitious that was. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You're, you're totally getting into my tech themes. Ah, all right. Well, we'll stop about. now. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's probably a good time. Do you want to move on to acquisition category? Uh, yeah, let's do. But uh, first, just to wrap up quickly on. Uh, on the, the aftermath of the acquisition. So as we mentioned, um, Perlmutter remains the CEO of the company. The company stays in New York. Um, so it's a fully autonomous subsidiary within Disney. Um, and, and like we said, basically they've just continued to execute on the plan that they drew up in 2005 when they launched Marvel Studios. Um, and, and, and producing dramatically more, like their their scale now. I mean, they had like five or six in the pipeline when they were acquired. But I think you look at the the, the pace of new Marvel movies coming out and new Marvel movies planned through the next few few years. Like they're they're, they're not letting up. Yep, and and even you know, so there's much more value to be realized from the company in the future. But even since the acquisition in 2009, um, the Marvel movies have generated almost $9 billion in revenue, um, in, in box office revenue, which is crazy. Now, uh, that doesn't necessarily equal, certainly doesn't equal profits and, and profits for movies are harder to get to, um, than, than pure revenue. We can, we can get that data. Um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, Marvel estimated profit margins, um, at least in the first eight films released, I actually pulled the stat, uh, uh, under Disney were about a 23% profit margin. Okay, so, um, you know, you call roughly sort of $2 billion-ish, slightly more than $2 billion, uh, in profit uh, so far from the movies. So that's half the purchase price right there, and that's just the box office. Uh, right. You know, not the, not the home video, not the merchandising, not the theme parks, you know, all that stuff. So um, Totally. And I even, I, I grabbed another stat. I think this is... Um... I think this is from, yeah, a Fortune article in 2015. One analyst said that by the time it was finished with the Avengers, Iron Man 3, and Captain America, and Thor sequels, Disney probably paid uh, for the acquisition of the entire company. So yeah. I think it's it's a pretty quick payback period there. And yeah. uh, I think looking at that, that 22% profit margin, and you look at the price tag of, of production now on these films, um, pretty expensive to make these huge blockbusters. Yeah. Well, you like need uh, two hundred million, one hundred fifty million. Yeah, you need. Well, well, we should we should delay some of this discussion until we till we render our final grade. But um, all right, all right. Uh, let's uh, let's jump into uh, category. So, as a reminder, we um, Pixar, which was our very first episode on this show, we actually we said it was a business line, uh, and then Lucasfilm, we said it was a product. Uh, so, what is what is Marvel? Yeah, so I am going to foreshadow my. Uh... Um, my tech themes and my conclusion a little bit here, but um, I think it was uh, two things. One is a business line. They they bought the um, the business line of making the films. They were able to scale that. Um, you know, we we talked about uh, kind of paying back the acquisition in a in a shortish amount of time. Um, you know, the studio itself, but ultimately they have this asset in perpetuity of the characters and. 
unlike, uh, in, in my opinion, um, the, the reason why we didn't call, well, we didn't have asset yet in this, this, uh, categorization for, for Pixar, but, um, Pixar sequels don't hold up as well as the serialization that comic book characters lend themselves to. Mm, so yeah. un- unlike a lot of sequels, which fatigue very often, there's, there's these like few in the world, the James Bonds of the world that, um, that, don't get tired because they're able to kind of keep reinventing it or they're the the stories are okay being formulaic so you kind of can keep experiencing this same um the same uh, tight plot line over and over again superheroes let themselves do that and the intellectual property uh um that i'm calling separate from the business line the intellectual property that is these characters are uh you know they're a, a true asset in perpetuity yeah interesting um Huh, foreshadowing one of my tech themes a little bit too, but um, I was going to be lazy on this one and say, "Oh yeah, totally a product," uh, just like Lucasfilm and being. You know, I think we called Lucasfilm the the sort of juice that gets pumped through the pipeline of the flywheel, um, and uh, and I thought that this is too, and I, I still think it is, um, but it's an interesting insight on the the serial serializ- serializability of superheroes and the assets of superheroes versus a Pixar, which as great as Pixar is, um, and I'm not excited for another toy story. Yeah, exactly. Like Like there's, it's kind of a harder business in a lot of ways because you're, you're betting on the capability of the team to keep producing new original great stuff. Right. It's like your assets depreciate faster. Yeah. Or yeah. Well, or there is no, I mean, they do do sequels at Pixar, but, um, but that's not the core of what it is. It's like you have to keep generating new, keep pushing the rock up the hill each time. Right. And actually, it's funny if you look at the uh, I was I was about to make the point that um, um, it is more expensive to create a, a Pixar film uh, be, because you don't have the same reusability that you do from the nth you know, superhero film. Um it actually is uh, the 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 profit margin on on Pixar films are higher. So hmm. to to kind of combat the the um, point I just made, twenty three percent profit margins for Marvel, twenty seven percent profit margins for Pixar, and uh, you know render farms and, and illustrators are expensive, but not as expensive as flying helicopters into buildings. <laughs> yeah, and uh, well, not that Pixar pays actors a lot too for their voice, but um... yeah. I would imagine probably in aggregate in terms of money paid to actors, Pixar movies, I, I would have to imagine are less than a Marvel movie. Yeah. Yeah. I would think. Um, interesting. Yeah. I like the, I like the asset categorization. I mean, I think it is definitely also juice to pump through Disney's flywheel. Totally. Um, but it is a different kind of asset than certainly Pixar. Um, and then I think in a lot of ways, Star Wars too. Um, Star Wars is kind of like, or Star, tellingly, I called it Star Wars, Lucasfilm. Um, you can just but call it's, it Star Wars. Yeah, but it's, it is Star Wars, right? Whereas Marvel um, is many of these franchises. Right, right, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great point. It's like if you look at the, um, the $4 billion price tag for Lucasfilm and the $4.2 billion price tag for, um, for Marvel, like think how many more characters it's like 800 plus characters or I think 500 plus at the time of acquisition in the Marvel universe and maybe 50 of which are recognizable by the American public. Yep. And you look at, look at star Wars and I don't think Lucasfilm 
was sort of looking, valuing themselves based on all those deep characters. And what we're seeing with the, the Disney powerhouses, they're sort of trying to make the Star Wars universe more serializable and more, um, kind of disparate with all these different, uh, um, stories that they're trying to tell that aren't with our, our, our favorite characters. And I'll be really interested to see yeah. not, not how Rogue One does. Cause I think that that's going to be, there's so much pent up demand for Star Wars that like, I want to see how the third or fourth non core yeah. Star Wars story does. And if, if Disney will be successful in kind of creating, uh, the sort of serial blockbuster out of Lucasfilm characters the same way they've been able to with, with Marvel characters. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. To think about these three acquisitions, which are obviously all fall within the same, you know, broad theme for Disney, but um, on a kind of spectrum from Pixar, where they're, uh, it's it's so much about the people and the creative process and creating individual new um, new creative works uh, to then kind of Lucasfilm sort of in the middle, where it's about the franchise, the one franchise of Star Wars, um, and uh, the cadence around that is uh, well. Before the acquisition, was very long cycles between any sort of new Star Wars content that would come out, and it's much faster right. now. Um, right, right, like multiple uh, decades. Yep, and 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 Lucasfilm is sort of about the people, you know. I mean, obviously, there's George Lucas um, and and some great leadership at Lucasfilm. Um, but, uh, but also, you know, about the franchise and then, and then you've got Marvel at the other end of the spectrum, which has had great business leadership, especially under Isaac, um, Isaac Perlmutter, but, um, you know, all of the, all of the talent that comes into the, the making the movies and even the artists of the comic books, like it's all, it's all third parties, you know? <laughs> Um, right. it's not, it's not like, it's kind of very, it's very different from Pixar. Yeah. Great point. Um, uh, all right. Should we move on to what would have happened what otherwise? Happened otherwise. Yeah. So, um, I, I think Marvel was going to get acquired. Like we were in an era of consolidation where distribution was buying content Yep. and I don't know who else it would have been. 20th century Fox, Sony, um, seems like actually there's a lot of places they could have landed. It's kind of shocking to me that with um, um, the Pixar pickup in 2006 that someone else didn't see this coming and try to make a play for it sooner. Did Maybe other people, other studios, or I guess well, other... Well, especially uh, the other... Stu- well, I wonder if the other studios maybe um, just were a little bit lazy in their thinking because they were kind of having their cake and eating it too, right? in that they were getting Marvel movies in, in Spider-Man and in right. X-Men um, without having to actually buy the company. Um, and, uh, and it was only when, uh, when Marvel started making movies on their own that it became a really valuable company as itself. Yeah, that's true. And it really hadn't been long since, since Marvel Studios was around. The, the shocking thing is, like, how did no one else... I mean, oh, actually, here's a here's kind of an interesting question. If you're 20th Century Fox, or if you are Sony Pictures, and you see 
um, let's say you could see the future and know that Disney was going to do this. Do you try to do it sooner? Like, did yeah. people a not think Disney was going to do it, or b not care that Disney was going to do it? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing that we we haven't talked about yet so far, but um, on the surface, uh, this actually wasn't the most natural fit with Disney. Um, uh, which actually I think is one of the reasons why Bob Iger and Disney really wanted to do this acquisition. Um, but Disney was always, you know, kind of like princesses and uh, animated movies and, uh, and then Pixar, which definitely fit into that mold. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of their strategy with children, you know, super gender stereotypes here, but I think this is the way a lot of at least historically, a lot of people at Disney have thought about this and in the media industry that Disney like owned little girls, you know, but they didn't, you know, and little boys too, but like they didn't have as to a much lesser extent, much to a much lesser extent. And that this was Disney's play for, uh, for little boys too. Um, I mean, what's, what's more attractive to little boys than superheroes, um, in, in total, you know, old school gender stereotyped uh, ways. <laughs> uh, speaking as a massive Frozen fan myself, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, I still haven't seen it. I uh, oh, you got to change that. It's so good. I know, I know. As a as a uh, admitted Pixar fanboy, I really should. Um, not not that it's Pixar, but like you know, to to see how that's entered the rest of the Disney umbrella. Yeah, and it's interesting to think too. I can't imagine this had that much impact on Perlmutter and Marvel because it was, they were much more business executives than sort of founder creative types. Um, but Iger and Disney have developed this reputation now with these three acquisitions as like excellent stewards of, of franchises. They're kind of like the Warren Buffetts of, of creative, of creative content and businesses. Right. You know? Right. Um, when, I think, yeah, in the, in the, um, Pixar animation, we or the, uh, I think it was the Pixar. Uh, no, in the Lucasfilm acquisition, we uh, compared it to Facebook. That that Disney yeah. was really good at leaving their um, their sort of disparate leaving creative that direction they acquire on their yeah. own. Which again, a little bit was why it didn't. On the surface, it was like, wow, Disney buying you know Marvel. Like Marvel is much edgier than Disney, but yeah. to- they've let it be totally separate. Um, but this was you know in the Lucasfilm acquisition. Uh, you know, George Lucas said to Bob Iger before he sold, like, if I'm going to sell it, I would only sell this to, to you and to Disney. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and Steve Jobs too, right? Like it's hard to imagine, uh, right. Pixar and Jobs selling to anybody except Disney. Right, right. Yeah. So two, two other questions here then for you that I would pose one, uh, is there a fourth, like, will we see mm-hmm. Disney make a play for another large piece of content? And I've been sort of racking my brain to think who that could be um, or who is the content that we don't think of as the big content yet as the up and comer. And then two, well, you're, you're sort of noodling on that. Um, I generalize this to uh, distribution, combi- uh, combined distribution content company buying more content and pumping it through their distribution. Do we see that in other verticals? Like, are we seeing that in tech outside of entertainment or any other forms of content being bought by um, distribution plus content companies? Hmm. Interesting questions. Well, on the second, I mean, to a certain extent, I think we see it a little bit with Facebook and um, and Instagram. I mean, it's very different. Like, I think Instagram would have grown hugely on its own. 
Um, but no question that on the ad sales side of the house, being able to just plug in Facebook ad sales into Instagram was hugely valuable there. Um, mm -hmm. On the first question, you know, I, I'm not close enough to uh, have a super informed opinion on, on that front. But one thing that just popped into my mind, especially because the company is struggling a bit now, um, what about Nintendo? Hmm. Boy, that's like the you're right that that is like the the another huge treasure trove of IP that yeah. as we saw with with Pokemon Go, I mean you 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 take an existing piece of technology or relatively existing with the uh, Niantic um and uh, and slap highly valuable IP like Nintendo's on top of it and you can create something, you know, that go, that the world goes crazy for. Uh, we can yeah. have a debate on how lasting that is, but Yep. Um, but certainly the IP that Nintendo has in, in Mario and Zelda, uh, and so, you know, even, I mean, they're in a lot of ways, like the parallels to Marvel are very similar. You know, you've got lesser known stuff like Kid Icarus and, um, uh, you know, and then you've got Pokemon, obviously, which is super well known. Um, man, what would, if, if all of that IP were liberated from the, challenged business model of like gaming console hardware sales uh um, right right yeah what what could you do with it and what this is interesting like almost all of this uh, probably excluding pixar but at this point pixar is a little kind of an older company too like what ip is super valuable and a major part of the american consciousness and new because all this is like, you know, buying the Star Wars stuff from 77 and buying the Marvel stuff from the 40s and 50s and yep. it, it, buying Nintendo from the 80s. Like, where, where is, you know, like, where's 2010's Mario? And, like, does that exist in the era of the internet and shortened attention spans and social media where um, individuals are their own content creators and yep. content is short-lived? Yeah, well, uh, maybe it lives on Facebook. Yeah, and it's like it's funny, like one you know, and all the rumors of, of maybe Disney buying Twitter, yeah, um, and then that sort of fell through, probably because of pricing issues. Uh, like none of these platforms own the IP. There's like shared licenses between the the tweet and the um, and uh, between Twitter and the originator of the content, but like there, it's hard to think of new intellectual property that everyone cares about like everyone cares about their little filter bubble of yep. content or i think about or, or like twitch too right like um right all the big um big entertainment franchises of the last five years certainly uh i think you would you know they're they're apps right they're not they're not ip themselves they're platforms um yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like all the all the major value in the recent stuff is the platform on which uh, massively distributed democ democratized IP is created and distributed, not not actually being a content powerhouse. Yep. Other than you know, actually, we are seeing this with Netflix, right? Netflix, Amazon, um, they they have the distribution, and we're previously licensing the content, and now we're creating content in house, and that's a pretty good allegory for sort of question number two there of of uh, who else is um, is uh, is doing this these days outside mm -hmm. of Disney. Yep. And I guess Netflix isn't necessarily buying up other companies that have content, but we are seeing heavy investment by the people that have the pipes in creating their own content. Yep. Well, actually, uh, you know, um, 
there are plenty of IP franchises out there being created and, and great ones. Um, I should have thought of this. Uh, Jenny and I, with my parents, uh, over Thanksgiving weekend, went to see uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, uh, which oh, Harry Potter, we yeah. loved. Um, but yeah, Harry Potter, of course. Uh, ah, another yeah totally and that's the last couple decades or decade yeah. and a half uh, or at least younger than some of these other franchises that right been, that disney's been buying yeah yeah maybe that's not a fair but also you know that was really created um not pre-social pre-internet media. but certainly pre-social media and um you know the first harry potter uh i don't think jk rowling or harry could have you know peered into the future and uh seen uh, the world that we'd live in today yeah, absolutely not. Uh, and in fact, you know, fun, like uh, uh, Ben and I both got iPhone sevens recently, and uh, uh, one of the I don't use it a ton, but just one of the sort of delightful features on it that I enjoyed discovering is the live photos. You know, the the Harry Potter photos. Yeah, right. It's kind of a uh, for those of us who are on the off cycle, or I guess the on cycle, and didn't have the six. I I, I just discovered live photos too, and you're like, whoa. These are uh, these are weird when I send them to people and they They're can get way too much moved. context. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Should we move into tech themes? Yeah, totally. So uh, the one uh, the, I've got one that's based on a stat. So of the top 10 grossing films in 1981, seven of them were original content. Raiders of the Lost mm-hmm. Ark, Arthur, Stripes, Cannonball Run, Chariots of Fire, Four oh, Seasons, Time Bandits. You've got one that's an adaptation on Golden Pond, and then you have two sequels, Superman 2 and For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to 2011, so um, three decades later. Mm-hmm. I'll read you the, the top 10 grossing films. Harry Potter 8, Transformers 3, Twilight Saga 4, Hangover Part 2, Pirates of the Caribbean 4, Fast Five, Cars 2, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Thor, Captain America. So that is eight sequels, two adaptations, and zero original pieces of content. Yeah, all of them franchises. Yeah. And it's fascinating to see the shift of uh the the playground that is the movie studio, the movie theater, the the whole all of Hollywood as a, a feature film production, the creativity and originality is is um, it's not happening there anymore. It's happening elsewhere, mm-hmm. and we're in this era right now simultaneously of of a great TV renaissance. There's every every season there's like brilliant dramas on with you know uh, Hollywood acclaimed actors and and best in class writing and um, uh, you know there was Mad Men, there was The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. Like we're leading up to this, and I'll. I'll save. There's one I'm watching that's my car about that I don't want to mention yet. But like, all of the experimentation has moved to cheaper things, um, TV or you know YouTube or or social media, and I'll, I'll and the the um, Hollywood is is the way to go and make a billion dollars off of uh, sure things because if you're going to go pour a couple hundred million in, you want to get big big money out, and you're not willing to take a chance. Yep. Um... It's interesting. I think that the question for me that that begs and that I've been thinking about, even starting to do the research and as we've been doing the episode, um, for all the um, the justifiable admiration, uh, deserved admiration that I think we're heaping on 
on Marvel and Disney here, I think there is one really key existential risk. And that's, you know, if and when the pushback to this dynamic comes from the public, you know, uh, how many yeah. sequels, and people have been asking this for years, and so maybe it'll never come. Um, but how many sequels can we take? You know, how long are superhero movies going to be in vogue? Um, you know, is this just a very extended fad cycle that we've been living in? Like in, in 10, 20, 30 years, will we look back on this and be like, man, that was like leisure suits. Like, remember the superhero movie days, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, I just wonder, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to it. Well, yeah, and if it's, I guess it's interesting to like if uh, if this is like a permanent thing, what changed in the world that um, like what piece of technology or what societal norm shift or something changed that made it so that um, it, we were well, maybe it's this, maybe it's we're actually capable of of creating something that resonates so strongly with with uh, uh, people's nostalgia. And it, we're actually capable of creating multiple billions of dollars of revenue on a single film. Therefore, we're going to spend all the money to produce that thing. Therefore, we're not going to take chances. Yeah. And, it's like and, maybe, and producing it, those films costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So it's like maybe the technology got good enough, both in distribution and production, where it was possible to spend that much money on making a film. And it was possible to spend... Um, to or to earn that much from instant global distribution that um, you know we actually we actually are seeing it come to fruition and it was only technology mm. limited before yeah and and the flywheel like Disney of you know consumer products and theme parks and <laughs> yeah. you know when you're investing in an IP as something as an entity like Disney like um, that is a huge investment you really can't uh, and, and and they do take risks and, you know, have failed on stuff like, um, what was that one? They had a couple live action movies that were total flops, like right around the time that they bought Marvel. Um, Which is interesting. Land, they're they're uh, taking big them. risks, but they're flopping. Right? Yeah, right, right. Um, but but they, you can't afford to have too many of those flops. Right. And I wonder if like, you you know, you get a few of those that are big risks that are flopping and then you just get scared away from doing it. Yeah. And you and you start pushing all your your uh, you're effectively prototyping down into cheaper cheaper distribution mediums. Yeah, it's interesting though. I mean, like where you know, as you said, so much there's so much innovation and a renaissance going on in the television format right now. Um, is there or will there be something similar in the you know film format? I mean, obviously there's independent film and there's lots of innovation going on. Um, but uh, but not at the not at the you know kind of mass audience scale that something like Netflix and Amazon has allowed risk to be taken in television and still have the ability to a channel to distribute that to a mass audience. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think sort of the same thing has happened with music, where there's like a psychological thing where we love the things that other people love and we all love having the same darling and the same heroes and like the same sort of music feels good to us. That feels good to the other people around us. And with global distribution happening so quickly and so cheaply, um, you, 
you have the ability to achieve much more sameness and mm-hmm. have much more people agree on what the best thing is. And it lead, we like to think that we have independent taste, but a lot of the time we're, we're sort of just like looking to hear from people like, oh, what's the best, you know, who's the Taylor Swift right now? Yep. And that's why we're getting so many fewer, it's like there didn't, except for like the Beatles, like there was never like, the Beyonce, the Taylor Swift, they were much more distributed and there were many yep. more um, people that could make it big. And now there's like this echelon of people that you can count on the on, on one hand who are like these super phenomenon, phenomenas. Yep. And uh, I think the same thing's sort of happening in movies. Yep. And well, music. and this, uh, this, uh, this totally bleeds, uh, leads super well into my tech theme, which is um, something I've been thinking about. I've been reading uh, this great book that came out... Uh, came out uh, last year, I think, uh, or a couple of years ago, uh, called Sapiens um, hmm. by by this guy, Yuval Noah uh, Harari. Um, and it's a great book. Uh, and it's about, um, it's sort of a, uh, a um, uh, biological time history of Homo sapiens uh, and how, um, you know, our, uh, our species came to take over the world, basically. Even though there were, there were, there are no longer, but there were other uh, species of the genus Homo, uh, Neanderthals and many others, uh, but uh, Homo sapiens sort of quote-unquote won, and, and you, know, you could argue now are destroying the planet, but um, certainly have taken over the planet. Um, what like actually differentiates us from other Homo species uh, and from the rest of the animal kingdom? And he argues that the the primary thing is our ability to uh, believe in, create and believe in fictions, um, he calls it, which are like, um, you know, a, a reality is like there is a lion over there, run, you know. But a fiction mm-hmm. is like there is a company and uh, there is a uh, story and, um, you know, this uh, um, we are, you know, the Internet is a fiction, right? But like it's not that it's not real. It's very real. Um, but it's not something that any other uh, species could comprehend. Uh, and so that that kind of makes me think about like IP and uh, exactly what we were just talking about. Like as the Internet has spread communication uh, instantly and globally, um, you know, are we seeing these major blockbuster franchises just continue to consolidate because of the power of these fictions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. Heady stuff for Marvel. <laughs> I highly, rec- highly recommend the book. Not my carve out for the <laughs> week, but because uh, I'm not done with it yet, but great book. Cool, cool. You want to grade it? Let's do it. So an interesting stat that I found when I was looking through all this, uh, if you look at the first eight films from Marvel post-acquisition and the first eight from Pixar post-acquisition, um, Marvel made about $6 billion gross, Pixar made about four and a half. Um, costs of creating them are fairly similar. The box office profit from Marvel is about one point two billion versus six hundred million. So there's like this interesting thing where Marvel does phenomenally better at the box office, but over the long term, Marvel's home video sales are about four hundred million, and Pixar's are one point six billion. And for there, there's an interesting thing that happens where with Pixar films, like people get attached to that one character and that one storyline, and they just continue to watch and buy that film forever. And 
when you look at the Marvel movies, like even just me thinking about like, what would I rather watch? Toy Story 3, which like, even though that's a sequel, like that has its own storyline that I can remember and I'm, I'm emotionally attached to, or like, do I care about owning or even like, you know, buying and watching again on, uh, on a streaming service or from Amazon, like Iron Man 2. And you can sort of see like that, that these serialization, uh, uh, films don't have lasting value or, or yep. nearly as much yep. as, as, as the Pixar ones do. And so I went back and listened and, you know, I have an, I have an A, not an A plus for Pixar. Um, and I think that it's fair for me to, to say Disney, uh, great acquisition, almost a necessary one. I, we'd, we'd be sitting here saying like, you were fools not to, to buy Marvel, but, um, it's an A minus to me. It's, it's not as good as, as the, the Pixar acquisition. And, um, I think the, the, the characters are, are brilliant IP for a long time. I think they've basically already recouped the cost of that, that $4 billion outlay. And, uh, we'll see what they can do with the, uh, the, the character intellectual property, because unlike Pixar, that, that those already created assets on a shelf, will just keep, um, keep creating value for them with, uh, with um, the assets that they have from uh, from Marvel, from, from these characters and this intellectual property, they're going to have to keep pouring cash in to ca- get cash out. Yep, uh, I think we found that same infographic uh, that I was uh, I, I I had it copied in my notes, and I was looking at it too. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting too to think about uh, <laughs> our grading uh, benchmark throughout this uh, throughout the life of this show. What uh, you mean, Instagram? Yeah, well, we start. Well, we well, no, I was gonna not the evolution of our benchmark. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I think yeah, Instagram yeah. is still one of, if not the top on on the benchmark. But I keep thinking about to to next, and uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't think you can argue that that's not the greatest acquisition of all time. Um, yeah. You know, when you create a trillion dollars of value, it's hard to top <laughs> that. Um, but uh, also makes me think a little bit about like the as cool as as much as we love you know ip and these fictions and what we were what i was just talking about in in uh, media and movies and these franchises the value that you can create in technology is so much more like the leverage is so much higher than yeah. you can get from the media industry or really any other industry um you know this this is why technology companies are so valuable you know 13 people at instagram can create many many billions of value you can't make <laughs> you can't make Iron Man three with thirteen people, um, or and, and, or and, the Iron Man theme park. And reiterating something we talked about last episode, last quarter, Facebook's operating margin went from thirty two percent to forty five percent on the incredibly large revenues that they have as a mature company, like yeah. technology. That is yeah. why technology companies are worth so much, and and you just can't pull a lever to make the twenty three percent. Uh, profit margin from uh, from these Marvel films into something you know 1.5 x that. Yep, yep. Um, and of course, there's a dark side to that too, as we also talked about <laughs> on the Facebook you know episode. Like um, you know, you don't create nearly as many jobs when you're pulling that right. technology lever. Uh, but right, right. anyway, we're we're getting off track here. Um, I agree on a minus, and I think about it in terms of lasting impact to Disney uh, and sustainable value creation within Disney and thinking about these three franchises, these three companies that they acquired, Pixar, you know, Marvel, Lucasfilm. um, I think in a lot of ways there is the most risk to the future value of Marvel. Um, And it's, 
It's in, you know, Will Superhero, because it's a, a portfolio of superhero franchises, will superhero franchises continue to be as popular? You know, I think so. They've been popular for 100 years, but how popular will they be? Um, you're totally indexed to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lucasfilm is all about Star Wars. Um, you know, and Star Wars, uh, you could argue you have even more risk indexed to that. However, you could probably also argue it is one of, if not the single most <laughs> uh, uh, beloved franchise in the entire world of all time. Um, so they were buying something very specific there. Um, but then Pixar really was, you know, they were buying a, a process and, uh, a, um, you know, both a people and a process, uh, that they've applied to their whole film and creative business. Um, so I think for, uh, both the reasons you said, Ben, and, and those reasons, I think Pixar needs to be rated higher than, um, than Marvel in this Disney trilogy. Um, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go a minus for Marvel. Cool. 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 All right. Uh, follow-ups. That, or, follow-ups. Uh, uh, one real quick follow-up, uh, spectacles have launched and, right. uh, people think they're cool. People do. Snap Inc. I would love, uh, if any listeners, um, have them would love uh love to hear your your comments in slack or email us at acquired fm at gmail.com um we haven't made it to a vending machine yet no no and my god evan spiegel is a uh a product marketing genius i think uh um (laughs) launching them what in a, a a custom vending machine in la and then that going away and of course selling out immediately and having a huge line and then popping one up uh where was the one in the kind of like Great Plains area? Like uh, Tulsa, I think. And then on the Grand Canyon. And then once people are saying, where is it going to be next? Then having a store in New York City that just has the vending machine in the back of the store. Yeah. And like, I, I just wonder what's next. And I maybe we'll, maybe there's even something before this uh, this show goes live. But um, yeah. Spectacles I, in space? <laughs> yeah, like doing doing everything right. Like you could totally see other companies being like, okay, we have to work with retailers to make sure there's enough of, the, enough of these things available. And it, it's it's totally just like demand generation uh, at its finest and brand building. And also the fact that like from all accounts, the product is right and has like a good use case and, and people like in, enjoy using it and say it's good. Like talk about controlling the message and really giving people confidence that that they're onto something when they're about to go on this ipo road show yeah um super cool i can't wait to try them um all right hot takes uh this is less of a hot take and more of a uh more of a congratulation to friends but uh hightower announced uh very very recently if not today as we're recording this um which is a startup in new york with lots of seattle roots uh, that they are merging with VTS in a deal valued at three hundred million. Yeah, huge congratulations to uh, to Donald DeSantis and that that whole team. Um, really, like really cool story. Startup Weekend guys uh, got together actually to to gel as a team at a Startup Weekend. Um, moved to New York when it was very clear that um, to be in commercial real estate, they should, they should be in New York really just nailed product market fit quickly, built a great team. And, uh, um, you know, this is not the end. It's the, it's a, a reported estimated $300 million merger with, 
um, their competitor and the, the the Wall Street Journal article that we'll link to likens it kind of to um to uh, the Zillow Trulia merger. Trulia, yeah. But awesome, awesome, awesome to see uh, see it happen for that company. Yeah, and um, great to have uh, uh, Startup Weekend alums. I mean, Startup Weekends played uh, uh, as an organization and end events such a huge role in been in my lives and careers. And uh, uh, whether it's Rover.com uh, getting started at Startup Weekend or uh, Ben uh, Ben meeting well leading uh, indirectly to us meeting and. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I our think PSL and, and, yep, and yeah. PSL and Madrona. Um, I've uh, got a really uh, gushing blog post about how much how awesome Startup Weekend is on my blog at some point. If anybody actually wants to check that out, but <laughs> yeah. should we move on to carveouts? All right, carveouts. Cool. So uh, there's going to be some people who are like, I knew this is what he was going to say uh, earlier on when I was hinting at this, but I am so into Westworld. It's a HBO show based on a Michael Crichton book, which then got turned into a movie in the 70s with Yul Brenner as a cowboy. Um, and I don't want to say too much about it now, but if you um, if you like the concept of where is AI and robotics going and you like really high production value uh, entertainment, it's it's uh, created by J.J. Abrams and, and Jonathan Nolan, who, of course, worked on all the, the, the recent Batman films and um, The Prestige and, uh, uh, yeah, a bunch of great films. Um, you you got to watch it. It's so good. And um, I just signed up for HBO now, and it's, like, trivially cheap, and you get a month free. So um, highly recommend it. Technology, technology, and superheroes all in one. Yep. <laughs> um, my carve out for the week, uh, real quick. Uh, I I don't think I've done this before uh, on this show, um, but I should have because I love it. Um, super cool app called Overdrive, which is uh, which is a way to digitally um, through an app and through your Kindle connect with your local library and uh, borrow books, uh, borrow eBooks and audiobooks from your local library and then read them on your Kindle or on your smartphone um, and listen to the audiobooks uh, for free with your library membership. And uh, I actually had started using this a few years ago, kind of forgot about it and picked <laughs> it up again uh, earlier this year. And it's just like uh, removing that little bit of friction to, you know, not that eBooks are very expensive, but audiobooks are. Um, yeah. I'm reading like four or five times as many books as I used to because of it. So Highly recommend it. Go sign up at your local library, support your libraries, and use Overdrive. True that. All right, that's all we've got. If uh, if you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client now. Um, if you're a longtime listener, or uh, even if you've just picked us up and, and you really like us, um, we don't ask for much, but we would really, really love if you'd uh, share about us on Twitter, share about us on Facebook, leave a review. It's, uh, it's how we grow the show, and uh, it's how we can... Um, reach more people and do more things. So thank you so much for being a listener and we will uh, hear you next time. We'll see you next time.